Well, I came in here dressed with as much red as I could. Last week I wore the green that I could to, uh, to try to match the uh, holiday festivities. And I did tell you, that, I don't know if it was that little synth right there. I don't know what that was. Man, that was, I was ready for Christmas. I'm like, let's go. Come on. This was, uh, it was great. I'm sorry, what? I, I do. I have new shoes. For those of you that were here a month and a half ago, my wife was so gracious to go and to get me there. If I ever wear anything that looks cool, it's because of Judith. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to look exactly like I did in 1988. <laughs> we are in a series that series is on Advent. We come here every year, and the church historically has come and talked about these four topics during the Advent season. We said this the first two weeks, typically, historically speaking, We're looking at what it is that we could be looking forward to when Christ returns, and then the last two weeks are sitting in a little bit more in on the birth of Christ himself, meaning a second advent was what the first two weeks look at, and the first advent is what the second two weeks look at. Now, over the years, that's gotten a little muddy. It's got them all mixed together. It's all good. Last week, we talked about hope, and we said this, wishing brings apprehension, but hope brings expectation. And we said Christ himself is our living hope. Today, we get to talk about peace. And when we say peace, I'm sure many of us have at least one thought that comes to mind. There's probably other things that come to mind, but we have at least one thought that comes to mind, and that is when we have a lack of peace. In fact, I would say we oftentimes know what peace is when it is a result of, of finally getting what we, uh, what we wanted, what we were praying for, what we were hoping for, etc., when there was an utter lack of peace, when there was conflict, there was something that was stirring inside of us. I don't think I'll have to sell you on this. Turmoil is often the result of conflict. There is this commotion, there is this confusion, this agitation, there is this stirring inside of us that never ceases to, or never seems rather, to rest. When we have conflict and that conflict goes unresolved, it just eats us away. Now, the closer the relationship that we once had, the more agitation, the more turmoil there will be when when the conflict remains. I don't know about you, but I don't typically get all that upset and offended when somebody that I really don't know at all says something about their disdain for me. It really, truly just does not bother me a whole lot because I don't know them. However, when I have conflict with someone that I know and love and value and respect and cherish, there is something internally, it's this drive. I I want that puppy resolved. And when they're not willing to engage or and when I'm not mature enough to take the posture I need to take to go and do what's right to make, that, that turmoil, it just churns inside of me. Early on in uh, um, the days when the twins uh, were, were born, so Judith and I were made for uh, seven years before twins came into our, the twins came into our life. And early on in their, their life, there was this particular night in which we were just at each other's throats. And in hindsight, I don't, I'm not saying this to get brownie points, not saying it because she's in the room right now. It's just in hindsight. In hindsight, she was right, and I was wrong. But I didn't realize that at the time. 
and I was standing my ground. And we were at each other's throats, and so we each had one of the twins, just babies. And so she had one in one arm, I had one in my, in, in my arm. And those babies were just screaming at the top of their lungs. They sensed what was going on in us, through us, to us. They sensed what was going on, and, and they were in turmoil. Now, she's the one who took the initiative to say, I think we just need to pray. I looked at her and said, I don't want to pray. But we did. We prayed. And as we were praying, the Holy Spirit in time and space came and changed both of our hearts. And I, when I say changed, I mean changed to a point where as we were praying through this particular circumstance and for one another, there was this sincere respect for one another. There was a love for one another. There was um, a desire to honor one another in the process. And as we were praying, our, our, the tone of our voices was, was coming down until we finally said amen and noticed that the twins had each fallen asleep. When there is conflict, there is turmoil inside of it. It's the result of it. However, wholeness is the result of peace. Here's the, the term peace that's used. You know this. In the Old Testament, it is the term shalom. And it means so much more than just simply the absence of conflict. None of us enjoy this. This is not fun. This is not good. But peace is more than just this. This is the absence of conflict. It's also the absence of relationship. It's the absence of completeness. It's the absence of wholeness. Peace, shalom, is this. Yes, this is preferable to this in some ways. But in other ways, at least the two of you are coming together. At least there's some type of relationship that requires some level of angst and hurt and pain. Remember what I said? I, I just don't get upset when somebody that I don't know at all has disdain for me. I, this doesn't bother me. Those that I love the most, sometimes we do this. And I would rather do this knowing that this is coming than settle for this. Shalom is wholeness. Peace is wholeness. It is completeness. Biblical peace is the absence of conflict and the presence of wholeness. Can I ask you what you would want in a relationship? In a marriage that is at the moment just sort of struggling, would you rather have this or would you rather have this? In a relationship with the parent, that right now you just seem to be at odds. You both are stubborn. You both are hard-headed. You both have an opinion. You both want your way. Would you rather have this or would you ha rather have this? In a relationship with a teammate, somebody that's on the basketball team or the football team or the soccer team, volleyball team, whatever it may be, would you rather have this? A bunch of teammates that exist together, or would you rather have this, a unit that moves forward? 
within your neighbors. The two of you just cannot figure out whose job it is to cut this part of the yard. Would you rather have this and a jungle growing with two and a half feet in between you, or would you rather have this? Human psyche, all of us would prefer to have this. And what I'm here to tell you is, we have been trying for centuries, for millennia, as people to figure out how to do this on our own, and here's what it's led to. And so we make some treaties, a large government level, and we say, we're not going to attack you, and we're not going to attack you, and we think that this is what we're shooting for. This never works. It's not how we're designed. It's not how God made us. Turmoil is the result of conflict, but wholeness is the result of peace. Now, here's the great question. How do we actually get peace? Is it possible to go from here to here to here? I will tell you, I think not only is it possible, I will tell you, I think it is a guarantee if Christ is a part of the equation. If Christ is not a part of the equation, I don't care how many treaties are written between what countries. I don't care how many pacifists are in the world. I don't care how many people with the best of intentions, good hearts, wonderful men and women who, who do their best. I don't care how much we try, there will never be wholeness in the world. Yes. Yes, I would rather have this in the world than constant fighting. But do you know what God's vision for the world is? This. And when Jesus comes back again, not only will we not have any of this, we will not have any of this. When Jesus comes back, the whole world, all kinds of different looks, all kinds of different shapes, all kinds of different interests, all kinds of different backgrounds are going to be here. So here's the challenge for us as believers this morning. Let the cat out of the bag. We, as believers in Jesus, as those who have submitted our lives to him, must come to peace with a lack of peace. We have to embrace that for right now, there's going to be a lack of what it is that we long for, but knowing that it will be coming at some point in the future. And so we must pursue life through the lens of, we're striving for what's coming ultimately, but we also have to be at peace with the fact that we're not going to have complete peace just yet. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. One more statement to give you. It's actually a quote. We'll talk about this a lot more in January and beyond when we look at the book of Joshua. But great philosopher Aristotle said this. We make war that we may live in peace. I want to tell you what Paul is going to tell us here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's going to tell us about how Christ went about the process of making war so that we might live in peace. If you're physically able, would you stand? As I read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. Now we'll do the same thing we did this week as we did last. We will not be able to dive into every detail of this passage as if we were teaching through an entire book uh, from cover to cover. That may just be someone's phone. Just want to make sure it went an alarm here. By the way, I don't know what it says about us that we're here when there's some sort of a thunderstorm warning. I don't know if it says that we're committed or if we're crazy. But I'm glad you're here. Yeah. We won't have time to walk through in depth in this particular passage, um, but we will get an outline view and we'll sit on a few things that are really, really important um, for us to understand in regards to uh, peace itself. Verses... 11 through 12, I think, tell us just simply to remember who you were. He is writing to this church, and this church has a mixture of people. When I say mixture, I don't mean that in a trite sense. America is called the great melting pot for good reason. Wonderful country. Glad that folks from all over the world have made their way into America, and I'm glad that we look the way that we look. Such great diversity. It's wonderful. In the early church right here, There was this group of people, and one group was called the Jewish people, God's chosen, God's elect, his that he had chosen to to reveal himself to, his name. They were responsible for getting the message about God to the world. And then there was this group of people called the Gentiles. The Gentiles were all kinds of different nationalities and ethnicities, etc. The Gentiles and the Jews by and large, did not enjoy the company of one another. And God's people had misunderstood, as time had gone on, they had misunderstood the the, the command that God had given them. They began to see all the ways that God had separated, and yes, it was God who was doing the separating of the Israelites and the world. He was doing that to put them on display to see all the work that he had done. But he had never intended, his heart was never to separate themselves and look with condemnation and judgment down upon those who don't have God. 
his heart was, God's heart was, I'm going to raise this group of people up so that they might put on display who I am and they will run after the world, giving them the message of who I am. The problem was this group of people began to think that God's choice of them was because of them. And so they looked at those who were not them and they said, surely God loves us more than he loves those. And so they began to treat those as those on the outside. Now, thank goodness we don't have any of those problems today. Paul is writing to these two groups of people that have now been brought to faith, and them and those have both bowed the knee of submission before the cross. And everyone before the cross had nothing great to say about themselves. It was, oh, thank you, Jesus. But they still did some of this. And they did some of this because they were still human. And God did not perfect them on the spot just yet. That was coming. That day is coming when Jesus returns, but, but he wasn't done with them. And so they're still doing this one other. And so he writes and he says, hey, you guys who were not a part of this Jewish community to begin with, I just want you to remember what it was like to be without Christ. Remember who you were. Wildwood, do you remember who you were without Christ? Do you remember what life was like before you met Jesus? It is my sincere hope and desire that there are many of you in the room right now that say, I don't, David. I don't remember what that's like because I grew up in a Christian home. And as far as back as I can remember, I just accepted the fact that Jesus is king of the universe. And so I've always just sort of made it my goal and ambition to follow him. And yes, I've stumbled and struggled along the way. And yes, I know what sin tastes like. I, I hope that many folks in the room say, I have no idea what it's like to be without Christ. But there are many of us that know exactly what it's like to be without Christ. Out of control. A life that has become unmanageable. A life so self-centered. Trying to see who it is that I can use in the process so that I can somehow or another make today better than yesterday. And what do I need to add to my life or take away so that tomorrow will be even better than today? Do you remember what happened when Jesus came along? And do you remember the shift that took place internally for you? And the things that you can't explain that you once were in turmoil, you, you had angst, you had commotion, you had confusion in life, but yet somehow or another, even though the outside circumstances did not change, you had this inner peace that took place. Do you remember what it was like when Christ changed you from the inside? Paul says, remember. Remember what it was like to be without Christ Lee Strobel has written several books, and in one of his books entitled The Case for Faith, he writes a very powerful story of a man named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton first professed faith in 1936, and he became an evangelist in that year. Later, he would hook up with a man, a little man, uh, not a very well-known man named Billy Graham. 
He would hook up with Billy Graham and would uh, go on uh, these evangelistic crusades and he would share his faith on a regular basis. But something happened along the way with Charles Templeton. He began to question some of the basics of faith. And as he was getting ready to go to Princeton Seminary, which at that time had already left the gospel, had jettisoned the gospel itself, no longer believing that the Bible was God's word, he was preparing to go to seminary, engaged in some conversations with Billy Graham. And he recounted in his book that he wrote a memoir that he, uh, um, that he wrote later on in the, I believe it was in the early 80s. He wrote about that, uh, that interview that he had with uh, Billy Graham and about the simplicity of Billy Graham's faith and that Billy Graham simply just accepted it because God's word said it. Templeton said, that's not good enough, Billy. Upon finding out that his mind was going, Lee Strobel recounts the ending of their conversation, which was, again, towards the end of Templeton's life. He was in his 80s at that point and was actually beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's. Lee Strobel asked him this. How do you assess this Jesus? Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except this was a form of greatness? I was taken back, says Strobel. You sounded like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes. He is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes. And tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Oh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most, he stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. 
With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked upward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively, finally, quietly, but adamantly insisted, enough of that. Do you know what it's like to miss Jesus? At some point in your spiritual pilgrimage, your spiritual journey, have you gone a long stretch where you've just sort of walked through all the things you're supposed to walk through? You've done the things that you're supposed to have done. You've showed up when you're supposed to show up, but you haven't really met with Jesus. At every Christian baccalaureate graduation commitments that I'm asked to take part of, whether it's college, high school, whatever it may be, I have one point that is the exact same in every one of these talks. See, it's not a matter of time if you are going to leave Jesus. It's only a matter of how much time you're going to leave him. We all leave him for five minutes or one day. Some of us leave him for a week or three months. Some even have left him for years. It is my prayer for all of us, whether it's five minutes or whether it's multiple decades, that we all would have a divine miss. That we would miss being with him. If you have someone in your life right now who is walking down a path away from the person of Christ, I would beg you to pray that. Pray that God would fill them with such a miss of him. I don't want to miss religion. I don't want to miss morality. I don't want to miss ethics. I don't want to miss trying to get it right. I do pray that each of us miss Jesus when we walk away from him. Paul says, remember. Remember when you were separated from Christ. The second thing he says is remember when you were excluded from citizenship. This barrier, William Barclay writes, between Jew and Gentile was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Even to go into a Gentile house rendered a Jew unclean. Before Christ, the barriers were up. After Christ, the barriers were down. Paul is writing them saying, you remember what it was like to be on the outside, to be excluded from the group that you really wanted to be a part of? The barrier's gone. Walk into any middle school lunchroom almost any week during the year and you'll see it. There'll be some kid that is trying as hard as he or she can to get into some group. Walk into any office complex you want into America, and while it looks different and is more sophisticated, you will find some employee trying so hard to get in with a certain group of people. Go into any neighborhood you want in America, and while it will look and sound differently, you will find some neighbor desperately trying to get in with people. Walk into any person's house who has just made a move from any city in the world to another. 
and you will find them desperately trying to get in with somebody. And here's the beauty of the church. We have the opportunity to say, come. You're welcome here. Paul says, remember what it was like to be separated from Christ and remember what it was like to be excluded from the family that you now belong to. Let that sink in. Remember what it was like to be ignorant of the covenant. Meaning, remember what it was like to not have the knowledge of the Scriptures that this is God's will, to know what God's plan is. Not that we have every detail about what the future entails, but that we know that God has a plan and He's moving forward with it. Remember what it was like to be in the dark in regards to who God is and how He functions. Fourth thing he says is, remember what it was like to be without hope, to not have the living hope to always be in a state of apprehension, to not have expectation. Remember what that was like. And then finally says, remember what it was like to be even without God. Without him at all in the presence of our life, you were formerly trying to figure out if some idol was going to provide for you, some fertility goddess was going to give you a family, or some weather god was going to give you the rain that's needed or something else. Remember what it was like to try to chase those things and try to appease those things? But now you have the person, the living God. In verse 13, he tells us to see where we are. You have been brought near, says the scriptures. Christ did the heavy lifting. We did not do the primary running towards the person of God. Yes, we had to take steps to move forward. Yes, we had to surrender the controls of our life. Yes, we had to move forward in terms of relationship. But it is Christ who took us when we were far off from God picks us up and transports us into the presence of God. He does this through his body. It's a curtain. Before you had this curtain that divided God and everyone else. And once time, at one time a year, one person can make their way into that room. Christ then went and picked us up and permanently put us in the room with God. And so he says, remember. Remember or now see where it is that you are. Christ has brought you in. In verses 14 through 18, he says, know what Christ has done. And in verse 14, he tells it to us that Christ himself is our peace. Now, what does this mean? Yes, he brings peace. Yes, he creates peace, which we'll see in just a second. But he himself is our peace. Charles Templeton would live out the entirety of his days, once choosing to walk away from God, choosing not to believe any longer in, in the validity of the Scriptures, he would live in turmoil. And he got to the end of his life and overwhelmed with emotion said, I miss him. Christ is your peace. Hear me. Circumstances being different is not your peace. More money in your account, although that will bring some measure of ease, of course, is not going to be your peace. Friendships, as good as they are, and what they will bring to your soul, will not be your peace. 
treaties with countries will not be their peace. Christ is our peace. He himself, the person, is our peace. In verses 15 to 18, he tells us how he brought peace. He brought peace outward. He brought peace with other believers who were naturally very different and previously very hostile with one another. That Jesus became the common, he became that which brought us together. He became the coach. This is a really bad analogy, but I'm going to do it anyway. He became the coach that all the teammates hated. That was the common bond. The team doesn't hate Jesus. You know where I'm going with this. He brought peace upward. He brought us peace with God, and then he brought the peace finally inward, and that is peace with self. We cannot have the peace of God until we first have peace with God. In verses 19 through 22, he tells us to understand the implications. This is where we wind down. In verse 19, he tells us that we collectively are the people of God. Very different. We have different political views. We have different educational views. We have different healthcare views. We have different views about a lot of things in life, and there's a ton of freedom to have a lot of different views. But we all have the same view of Jesus. And Jesus is what brings us harmony, etc. We are the people of God. We can have different expressions of worship. We can have different styles. We can have different approaches. We could even, to a certain degree, have different doctrines. Please hear me. Within reason, we can have different doctrines. I'm not talking about the essential doctrines. I'm talking about things that don't matter. We can even have different views on that. But we collectively are the people of God. Can I feel you in on a little clue here? You do realize we have one church in Tallahassee. We are the people of God. And that worship expression looks different for the church that we prayed for this morning, St. Peter's. It looks different over there. You stand and kneel and sit 181 times in the service. And it's awesome. And there are some folks that love all of that formality, and God loves all of that formality. And we've got another church in town. They come in, and there basically is no plan. And you walk into that service, and, and everything is in the spur of the moment, and yes, there has been preparation beforehand. People know what they're doing in terms of playing music, but they play on the spot as they sense they are led in that moment. And they love that style of worship. And God loves that style of worship. And I can't stand it. And there's churches in our, in our town that have about 14 or 15 people that gather every Sunday. And they love that church. And God loves that church. And there's other churches in town that are in the multiples of thousands that show up and gather. And there's folks there that love that church, and God loves that church. And we all are the people of God. Now, any church that says, well, you know, Jesus is 
one of the ways that we're made right with God. You're not the people of God. You're not on the same team, man. I don't mind calling you out. But the other ones, it's an us thing. Verses 20 to 22, he says that we are being built. So this is the last couple of statements. What is all this leading to? All this peace, the peace that Christ has brought to us. He himself is our peace. The the, the outward peace that we have with one another, the upward peace that we have with God, the the inward peace that we even have. What, What is all this mean? What do we mean when we say we have to come to peace with the fact that we won't have complete peace in this life? Paul is telling us right here in verses 20 through 22 that we are in the process of being built. God is the architect. The Holy Spirit is doing the work. Jesus continues to do the heavy lifting. We are being built into the church that God desires. You are being built individually and we are being built collectively together as the church, which means this. We are called by God to seek peace. And there are two places that we are called to seek peace. God does not give us an option. He does not let us off the hook. He says you must seek peace with your brethren with whom you currently have conflict. And so if there is something between the two of you, then you are called to go and to seek peace. Follow the principles of Matthew chapter 18. Take the log out of your own eye. Confess your own sin. Where you have done wrong, own up to it. Accept personal responsibility. But go seek peace. And in as much as it is up to you, we are called to seek peace with all men. This is the first place. We're called to seek peace with those whom we have conflict. And the other place that we're called to seek peace is those who don't have peace with God just yet. Those who are on the outside, the Jewish people, looked down on the world. And and Paul is saying to them, hey, do you remember what it was like to be on the outside because now you're on the inside? And what I want you to do is to remember what it was like. And it will fuel your desire to bring peace to people who don't have it. So Wildwood, seek peace with those with whom you have conflict within the church, whatever the name of that church may be, and seek peace with those who don't have peace with God. Do you really think God is not going to bless you if you try to seek that? Do you really think he won't be for you if you try to seek it? So don't worry about messing it up. He'll lead you. Peace is coming. Turmoil is a result of conflict. Wholeness is a result of peace. 